Only those who submit to the will of God can understand the mind of God. But God has chosen to conceal some things until the end. Be spiritually responsible every day because resurrection and recompense are guaranteed something. Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. Manna is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us, and now, here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you'd open your Bibles to Daniel 11, uh, we're going to begin to pick up the narrative in verse 36 today. Lord willing, we'll finish our study in Daniel Remember that Daniel is uh, really a, the prophet, and he records four prophetic revelations that were given to him by the Holy Spirit. Daniel 10 through 12, the last three chapters, are one revelation, and it really focuses on the future of the nation of Israel. Last week, we did a very detailed, thank you for those of you that stuck with us, uh, look at chapter 11 that prophesied the history of Persia, Greece, the Seleucids, and Potomac. Uh, Ptolemaic empires, and finally last week we looked at the life of Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, a Syrian king that really, as we mentioned, was the prototype of the coming Antichrist. So today we'll be in chapter 11 beginning at verse 36, and that verse jumps us forward through the centuries into the future, uh, and it jumps us forward into the last seven years of this current age. And the last seven years are described as the tribulation period, and the last half of that seven-year period, the last three and a half years, is called the Great Tribulation. Now, various Gentile kings and kingdoms have ruled over planet Earth, so we're going to talk about the final world empire at the final era of its dominion and the final king that is ruling that final empire at the end of its dominion. Verse 36. We begin to describe the character of this final king. Quote, then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. Here's the principle, and it's extended one, but it's imperative that you get it. God has ordained the great tribulation in order to accomplish three things. Number one, put an end to wickedness and wicked ones. Number two, to bring about worldwide revival. And number three, to break the will of the Jewish people in order to save them. So there are three reasons for the Great Tribulation. Number one, to put an end to wickedness and wicked ones. Number two, to bring about worldwide revival. And number three, to break the stubborn will of the Jewish people in order to save them. So this king, this final king of the final world empire on planet Earth of this current age, before Jesus Christ comes back and sets up his messianic kingdom, is called by various names. He's called the king of fierce countenance. 
He's called the man of sin. He's called the willful king. He's called the son of perdition. He's called the beast. He's called the lawless one, etc., etc. Generally, he's commonly referred to as the Antichrist or the pseudo-Christ. So he's a, he's a false Christ, a fake Christ. And it says that he will do as he pleases. So he's not going to be subject to any law because he himself is the law. He makes the law and follows only as he pleases. So this king will be accountable to no one on earth. And Revelation 13.2 highlights that, quote, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like those of a bear. His mouth was like a mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? So the power of the beast, the Antichrist, comes from the dragon, who is Satan. Apparently, at some point in time, the beast, the Antichrist, he's a human king, will fatal, uh, suffer a fatal head wound and be restored to life or resurrected back to life by Satan. As a result of this miracle, the entire world, who is not written in the Lamb's book of life, will follow Satan and the Antichrist and worship them. This individual, the Antichrist, will exalt and magnify himself above every god. So he is proud, just like his father Satan is. He exalts himself, enlarges himself, not just above every human, but above every god. 2 Thessalonians 2.3 warns us, Paul writes and says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Who? opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Paul's talking about the timing of when this is going to occur. And he uses the word apostasy. Apostasy simply means spiritual defection from the faith. So it's people rejecting the faith of Scripture and the Bible. At the end of the time, there's going to be widespread defection from the truth of God's word, even among people who you think uh, know better. So this lawless king, who's described here as being lawless, he opposes all laws, all gods, all authority, except himself. So he is his own authority, period. To the point of time where he's going to set up an image of himself in the temple and demand that everybody worship him as God. Remember last week, we looked at Antiochus Epiphanes. We said he was a prototype of the Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes set up a statue of Zeus, which is the Greek god, and demanded everybody worship that. This character is going to put an image of himself in the temple and demand that everybody worship him. And, of course, we look at that and we go, man, that is narcissistic. And yet we have an entire culture that's based on that. Look in the mirror. It's the most important thing. Self this, self that, paint this up, fix that up, you know, whatever. Don't get me started. I'm getting distracted, right? <laughs> so he's going to set up an image of himself and demand that everybody worship him. It says he will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. Now, Antichrist is not only proud, he's profane. He's blasphemous. This word monstrous is an interesting word. 
It means astonishing things. It means literally unbelievable things. So he's going to blaspheme God with a degree of insolence and arrogance beyond what any human being has ever done. Stuff is going to fall out of his mouth that you will not believe that he said, but in fact he will say it against God. Revelation 13.5, and there was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. In your Bible, underline the word given. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So Antichrist refuses to honor God, fear God, worship God, obey God. He rebels against God. He demands to be worshipped as God. If you want to know the source of his authority, it is Satan. If you want to know the source of Satan's corruption, you go to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Just mark that down as cross-references. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 chronicle the fall of Satan due to pride. And Antichrist is the son of Satan and follows his master's footsteps in his own pride. But what is utterly intriguing is that his power to rebel against God was given to him by God. He's on God's leash. By the way, everyone is on God's leash, right? No one acts outside God's permissive will. God allows many things that he does not approve of, including our sin. God permits many things that he does not promote, right? He allows us to make decisions. He allows people to choose evil. And he gives them the ability to do that because he honors the decision he made eons ago to give us free will before the beginning of time. So God has predetermined, sovereignly predetermined, that Antichrist is going to rule planet Earth for 42 months, or three and a half years, or 1,260 days. That is predetermined. And it's important that you understand that because this is the most difficult time of persecution and affliction in the history of the planet. Verse 36 says that the Antichrist will prosper until a specific thing occurs. The indignation is finished, for that which has been decreed will be done. So the Antichrist hate God's, and chooses to rebel against God, and he will be judged by God for his rebellion. However, God who controls all things, including evil, will allow him to rebel successfully for a period of time in order to accomplish God's purposes. When you see stuff happening on the planet today, evil things, evil does not occur by accident. God never says, whoops, I never saw that coming. Like your dentist does when they think you're drilling a cavity and it turns out not to be a cavity, right? Yeah. God never says, whoops. Everything has been preordained by God's sovereign control to accomplish his divine purposes. The reason we think it happens by accident is because we do not understand the sovereign, eternal infinite plan of God in detail, right? And this individual will prosper for a specific period of time until the indignation. The indignation refers to the tribulation. 
The indignation refers to God's wrath that is poured out on sin during the period of the tribulation, which is one of God's purposes, is to put an end to wickedness and wicked ones. Those of you who think God has somehow grown tolerant of sin do not understand the holiness of God. God has always hated sin. He hates sin today. He's furious over sin right now. But his mercy restrains his judgment for a period of time called the day of grace. That's why he appeals to humans to repent while there's time. There's going to come a time where that ends. And it's clear that God is sovereign because it says, for that which has been decreed will be done. Whatever God ordered in eternity past will surely be done in time. And we're going to see that. Verse 37. Antichrist will show no regard for the God of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other God, for he will magnify himself above them all. So this king is not only proud, he's profane, he's not only profane, he's perverted. Pagan Gentiles typically pass down their gods to their children. And we do the same thing. The things that we value, we try and pass down to our children. But this king disregards all traditional gods. He rejects any traditional religious heritage. He rejects family. He has no natural affection for the family. This notion that he does not uh, share the desire for women has been often interpreted that Antichrist will be homosexual. And that may be true. But it's probably more likely that he simply does not have the capacity for normal affection for women, whether it's wife mother, sister, or anything like that. As a matter of fact, he doesn't regard any other God. You know, if you look around the world, virtually everyone has a God or gods that they elevate and they worship. If you look at what you do with your time and your money, it will tell me what you value, right? That's an indication of where your priorities are. Well, you're going to find out what this guy's priorities are, and it's not God and it's not religion. He is irreligious. He values no gods, no religion, and no family, verse 38 tells us, but instead he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. So Antichrist has a God. His God is power. Instead of valuing family, women, and the God of the Bible, he worships power. It says he's going to value fortresses, which literally means a strong place. It refers to military power. So he spends all his wealth and energy and his time building his military war machine. And he's going to use that machine and he's going to attack other nations, acquire more wealth, which he can then, in fact, turn into more military might. Now, it says he has a foreign god who helps him succeed. Now, this is probably likely, number one, Satan, who is the source of his power and authority. And then secondarily, derivative from that, comes uh, his military power, his war machine. He's going to build a military the likes of which had never been seen on planet Earth. It says he's going to reward and promote people that are loyal to him. And he's going to give them positions of leadership. So if you declare loyalty to the Antichrist, you're going to get promoted 
in his hierarchy, and he's going to give you possessions of land that he captured from other people. Dictators do this routinely, right? You reward people that are loyal to you. You've got to keep your coalition happy because they keep you in power, so you pay them off with wealth and positions and land, etc., etc. During this period of time, Antichrist is conquering and God is beginning his judgment on planet Earth in Revelation 6. And the judgments of the seven seal and seven trumpet judgments are taking place concurrently with this. Verse 40. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, with Antichrist, and the king of the north will storm against Antichrist with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. Remember, Antichrist doesn't show up as a military dictator in the beginning stages of his reign. He comes as a peacemaker. He comes as a mediator. He's going to solve an enormous number of diplomatic and political crises on planet Earth through peace and mediation. So the world is going to follow him because he's going to solve their problems, apparently, through peaceful mechanisms. So he's going to be hailed as one of the greatest peacemakers of all time. However, as the tribulation progresses, this seven-year period, the last seven-year period before Christ returns, he's going to become more aggressive. It says that leaders of the countries to the south and the north will revolt against his rule. The south probably involves coalitions of military from Africa and more likely the Arab bloc, and he's going to battle with the king of the north, and that battle is found most likely in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And interestingly enough, Ezekiel 38 and 39 seems to refer to nuclear weapons and nuclear weapon exchanges. If you want a good read some night and you really don't want to go to sleep, read Ezekiel 38 and 39, and it will definitely keep you awake, right, if you're reading it and thinking. So in that battle where Russia comes down from the north and invades Israel, it appears that there is a nuclear exchange and a cleanup process that takes place after the fallout. So at that time, remember, Israel is now under the protection of the Antichrist. So Israel is going to come as a mediator, as a savior. Israel is under the gun around the world because we know that no other nation will stand with Israel at this point in time. Israel is going to stand alone, and Antichrist is going to cut a peace treaty with them. He's going to sign an agreement to protect them, and that is the start of the tribulation. If you want to know what begins this last seven-year period, it is the peace treaty that Antichrist cuts with the nation of Israel. Now, you're probably not going to be here because Thessalonians, which we're going to get into in a few weeks, indicates that we'll be raptured before that occurs. But that will be the trigger point to start the Great Tribulation is the peace treaty that Antichrist writes with Israel. Now, Antichrist is going to annihilate the enemies to the north and the south, and he's going to enter into and take up residence and establish his headquarters inside Israel, verse 41. He, Antichrist, will also enter the, quote, beautiful land, refers to Israel, and many countries will fall, that those will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he, Antichrist, will stretch out his hands against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. 
but rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, underline this, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Here's the principle. Everything on earth has an expiration date, including you. So invest your energy into eternity. Everything on earth has an expiration date, including you. So invest your energy into eternity. So Antichrist now takes up residence in Israel. He invades Egypt, northern Africa, probably Arabia as well, captures their treasures and their loyalty. It says they follow after him at that point in time. And apparently, he's going to be so busy fighting battles elsewhere that he's going to overlook and not capture the region to the southwest of the Dead Sea. Edom, that's their national territory, Moab and Ammon, that's all modern-day Jordan. So apparently there's going to be a spot southeast of the Dead Sea, modern-day Jordan, that is not going to be under his control. At that point, some of his enemies are going to regroup and plan to attack him, but it says he proactively launches attacks and destroys them. I want you to think about something. Antichrist, the son of Satan, has intimate connection with the occult. So when he fights, he's not fighting fair because he's got Satan and a demonic host that fights on his behalf against earthly enemies. So he's going to succeed in most of his military endeavors because he's got supernatural help from the dark side, shall we say, right? Not really a fair fight. So having won multiple battles, we're now approaching the midpoint of the, mid, the, mid, the tribulation. Antichrist now makes a fatal error. He thinks he's invincible, which pride will do to you. And he now moves his headquarters, it says, between the seas. Well, the only two seas at that point in time they knew about were the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea. Between the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea is Mount Zion. That's the beautiful holy mountain. That's Jerusalem. That's where the temple sits. So somewhere midway through the tribulation period, the last three and a half years, he sets up one world government where he is the sole ruler, and he sets up one world religion where he's the only one you can worship. And he will have his temple in Jerusalem, and you will worship and fall down in front of it, or you will be killed. All this is in Revelation 6 to 18. God continues to pour out his wrath on sinful planet Earth with the trumpet and the seal, trumpet and bowl judgments. And after the last of the bowl judgments, the earth is virtually destroyed. When you read those 12 chapters, when it's done, there's not a whole lot left. The kings of the earth will gather to fight against King Jesus at Armageddon. All the human armies will be slain by King Jesus, and the Antichrist and the false prophet will be seized and thrown alive into the lake of fire for all eternity. So that's the end of the Antichrist. Daniel is still concerned about what's going to happen to Israel during and after this period of time. So the angel now reassures Daniel that even though Israel is going to be severely distressed, they'll be rescued, chapter 12, verse 1. Now at that time, he's talking about tribulation period, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. 
And there will be a time of distress such has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Remember, this passage is about Israel. Michael is the only angel mentioned as an archangel. He's here described as a great prince. His concern, his sphere of influence, is largely the nation of Israel. This time of distress is also known as the time of Jacob's trouble. That's another description of this period of time. Satan is going to try to destroy every son of Abraham, and Michael's going to rescue Israel. Remember, Satan hates Israel because they're the people from where Messiah was born, right? When Messiah returns, when Messiah is going to destroy Satan. So Satan has been on a rampage from the beginning of time when he found out that Israel, when God called Abraham, that was his cue, that this is the nation state. Satan's been trying to destroy Israel since, and he will really ramp it up during the revelation period of time. So the angel says, number one, Daniel, God has appointed Michael to protect your people, Israel. Number two, you need to remember the big picture, resurrection and everlasting life, follow this intense period of persecution during the tribulation, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Many Jews will die at the hands of the Gentiles during the tribulation. However, Jews who believe in the Messiah will be resurrected to everlasting life and will be given positions of honor in God's everlasting millennial kingdom. And he says, Daniel, Jews who are wise choose to follow Messiah even though through suffering, and they will be glorified in God's presence and sound like, shine like stars. And Jews who reject their Messiah will obviously be separated from him and will not partake in the promised blessings. Verse 4. But Daniel, as for you, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Now, Daniel did not understand all the words of the prophecy in chapters 10 through 12, right? And he's going to ask for more particulars here in a little bit. And God says, look, when I said seal a book up, I want you to preserve the written prophecy. I want you to keep it safe. I want you to make it secure because it's going to be needed in the future. The complete meaning of this prophecy will not be understood until the time of the tribulation. We don't understand all of this. We have to come to this with a great deal of humility. During the tribulation, people... Israel especially, are going to study this prophecy so that they can understand what's going on. That's what he's, the angel just told him. See, looking back over history, we understand things today that people 500 years ago didn't understand because we have the benefit of what? Hindsight. Looking back, we say, golly, I know a lot more now than I did then. Yeah, you got a lot more scar tissue now than you have then too from bad choices, right? And some good choices, so it's all good. But during the tribulation, 
many people, especially the Jews, it says they're going to run back and forth trying to find answers for what's happening to them. When you're under intense persecution and intense affliction and intense suffering, what's the number one thing we say? Why is this occurring to me? And how can I deal with this? What does God want me to do in this set of circumstances? And they will find answers to that in this prophecy. God says to Daniel, you seal this up because your people are going to need to read this in the future when they're in the middle of the persecution so they can understand and their knowledge is going to increase as they study God's word. So Daniel's been reassured about Israel's future and he wants to know the chronology. When's this going to happen? How long is it going to last? Verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, Times and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Here's the principle. God loves his people relentlessly. And he is ruthless in destroying anything that separates them from his love. God loves his people relentlessly. And he is ruthless and destroying anything that separates them from his love. What I want you to do is put your name in that sentence and think about it. Daniel's by the banks of the Tigris River, where he got this vision. He sees two angels, one on each bank of the river, apparently there to witness what Daniel's now going to be told. Daniel then sees a third figure, a man dressed in linen, who is in the air, elevated above the river, in the middle of the river. Angel on each side, figure in linen, elevated above the river in the air. Daniel has seen this man before, in chapter 10. Dressed in white linen. Linen is the garment of the priesthood, which indicates purity. This is a Christophany, or a theophany. It's appearance of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And the angels, interestingly enough, they're the ones that ask the question to Christ. How long will it be until the end of these wonders? How long will the Antichrist rule over planet Earth and force people to worship him? I wonder if they're getting tired of fighting demons. You know, we found out that there's demonic warfare going. They're probably tired of it as well. They're saying, Lord, you come back, right, and set your kingdom up so we can get done with this constant battles. I can only imagine, right? And it says that this pre-incarnate Christ doesn't only raise one hand, he raises both hands. Now, if you've ever been to court of law, and they ask you to attest or swear an oath that you will do what? Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. And you're supposed to raise your right hand, correct? When you raise your right hand, it's a physical validation that you are promising to tell the truth and keep your word. And the Lord Jesus Christ raised both hands 
in an absolutely binding promise, and he swears an oath by who? His Father in heaven who lives forever. What does he swear to? The duration of Antichrist's reign of terror will last for three and a half years, or 1,260 days, or three and a half years of 30-day months, which is 42 months. And you say, why is it so important that Jesus Christ swears by his Father the duration of the tribulation? Because it's imperative that you understand that he is sovereign over the tribulation. There's going to be many, many people going through the tribulation that at least for a period of time will wonder why it's occurring. At some point in the tribulation, they will understand that God actually exists and he has declared war on planet Earth for his divine purposes. And this period of time is predetermined and decreed by Almighty God. So the tribulation does not occur by accident. It happens by design in order to accomplish God's eternal purpose. And Jesus then tells Daniel one reason the Antichrist will be allowed to do what he does for three and a half years. And this is so sobering, it actually makes me tremble. Quote, As soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be accomplished. So God has divinely purposed that Israel will endure suffering and persecution by the Gentile world in order to purge them from their stubborn pride. And that purging will go on until the time that God has appointed from eternity past, which is 1,260 days or three and a half years or 42 months. In Ezekiel 20, verse 30 to 38, I'm just going to quote 38, God states that he is going to Enter into judgment with Israel, and verse 38 says, And I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. So Yahweh, God, Jehovah, is going to use the tribulation to purge out the Jewish rebels and those who refuse to repent. We talked last week about the purpose of Israel. God has set apart Israel in Exodus 19 to represent him on earth. Israel, you are a nation of priests. You are to represent me to planet Earth. I am going to show you myself so that you can reveal me to planet Earth so that I can save them. Guess what? That is your job description now because the church has inherited that responsibility after the crucifixion. We are now Christ's ambassadors and we are accountable to represent him well and accurately. Here's the problem. The nation of Israel rejected God's plan for them. Even more so, they rejected God's son, who was promised to them centuries in advance, and who was born in their midst, demonstrated miracles, and they still rejected him. And now, instead of trusting in Christ, the son of God, they're going to place their faith in Antichrist, the son of Satan, and they're going to cut a peace treaty with him. They will place their allegiance and their faith and the Antichrist promised to protect them instead of God. Scripture clearly teaches after three and a half years, midpoint through the tribulation, Antichrist is going to break his priest treaty with them, he's going to turn on them, and he's going to try and massacre all of them. He's going to try and kill all of them. Antichrist knows that Jesus will not return to earth until the Jewish nation cries out for him to come back. 
Messiah promised in Hosea 5.15, I, Jesus, will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. So after his resurrection, his rejection by Israel, and his resurrection, Christ left earth and went where? Back to heaven. He will return to earth when and only when his people, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, acknowledge their sin of rejecting him and cry out for him to return. How long will that take? Three and a half years of persecution. That's what it's going to take to break their pride. And this is the part that just tears my soul out. By that time, two out of three Jews will have been killed by the Antichrist. Zechariah 13.8. And it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perished, but the third will be left in it, and I will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. So God's purpose is to purify Israel and bring them to the point of turning away from sin and placing their faith in Messiah. And that is God's purpose for everyone else on planet earth as well. God wants to save the world, correct? One of the ways he does that, one of the ways he draws us close to him is what? He arranges suffering in our life. He arranges troubles and trials and problems and pain so that we will stop worshiping the false god of self who says, I got it. I can handle it. I don't need the Lord. I've got health and wealth, power and prestige, family and friends. I got this thing. And the Lord says, that's idolatry and that will draw you away from me, not draw you close to me. I am the source of blessing. I am the source of your life. The closer you are to me, the more your life is blessed because I am the source of eternal life. So I will do whatever it takes to draw you close to me. And that means God's love is ruthless. Whatever is separating you from God is his enemy. And he declares war on that. And he will destroy it because you belong to him. And I've had surgery done with God with no anesthetic. Because I was sinful, still am, and not repentant. And God had a run over my heart with a Mack truck. You know what I'm talking about, yes? You've had it happen. That's why we pleaded in this class, repent early. Why would you suffer more than you need to? Repent early. So we look at what happens in Israel, and God does this because he loves his people. He wants to save them for all eternity, and he wants to turn them back. And that will happen, Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace, and a supplication, so they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. 
See, none of us return to God without the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. None of us come to God without the Spirit calling us and us responding, but the Lord always takes the initiative. At the very end of the tribulation, Israel's enemies are closing in on them, and their destruction looks to be certain. It looks like they're going to be literally destroyed as a people. And the point of maximum pain and despair, Israel will cry out for Messiah to come and save them. And the Lord Jesus Christ will then return on the clouds of heaven. They will see him. They will repent of their sin and their rejection of him, and they will be saved. And God loves Israel so much that he's willing for them to suffer. He arranges for them to suffer because he wants to save them for all eternity, and he loves you that much too. I can remember telling God, if that's how much you love me, love me less. <laughs> this heat is frying my skin. God says, no, I love you that much. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to purge you of, of your idolatry. I want to purge you of anything that gets in the way between you and me. Anything. His love is relentless. And he is utterly determined to destroy whatever separates us from him. That's how much the Father loves us. John 15, he talks about the vine and the branches, right? He says, I am the vine, you are the branches, and my Father is the vine dresser, and he has the pruning shears, and he will prune your life of anything that he determines is superfluous or is getting in the way of what he wants to do in your life. Now, right now, we weep and wail over the pain. When we get to heaven, we will praise his name because his love was ruthless and relentless. By the way, that's how you're to love your family, too, your children, your family, your friends. Your love is to be relentless. And you know how you do that? You pray the power of Almighty God into their lives. And you never stop banging on heaven's door. You get a 20-pound sledgehammer and you start banging on heaven's door with prayer. He says, pray without ceasing. That's what he's talking about. And prayer like that is hard work. And prayer like that breaks your heart because you look at the people you love and it just rips your soul up when you see the stupid and the deception and the lies they believe and the crazy decisions they make. And then you look and go, that was me. Lord, you know that was me. And how much suffering did it take for me to come to you? And the answer is probably more than was necessary, but I was above average stupid and stubborn and all that stuff, right? And so when you pray for your kids, you relive that. And that's why it, hurt, it hurts your heart. And we just say, I don't want to go there, God. God says, that's where I live with you, so you pray without ceasing. Amen? All right, verse 8. As for me, I heard, but I could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. Here's the principle. Only those who submit to the will of God can understand the mind of God. But God has chosen to conceal some things until the end. Let me say that again. Only those who submit to the will of God can understand the mind of God. But God has chosen to conceal some things until the end. So Daniel's confused. He's struggling to understand the meaning of everything he's heard. 
He's looking for specific information, but he doesn't get it. Jesus didn't give Daniel more details because the ultimate meaning could not be understood until the events take place. However, God will preserve the information for the benefit of those who are living in that time at the end. What it's saying is we need to be content with what God has revealed and accept the fact that God has chosen not to reveal everything to us. It's okay to say, I don't know. Some things in this life are holy mysteries. Right? I see people running around, well, I want to find out what's going to happen. I've got to go to this prophecy conference, that prophecy conference, find out what's going to happen at the end time. You know something? God will reveal to you what you know, what you need to know. There are some things you don't need to know because you're not doing really well with what you know now. <laughs> right? You don't need more information. You need to obey the information you already have. God has told me that so many times, right? So you say, Lord, some things are holy mysteries. Deuteronomy 29, 29. However, God did tell Daniel, many are going to be purified and refined in the fire of suffering. God's going to preserve a remnant. One-third will be saved. Two-thirds will reject the Messiah and will die in their tribulation. And here is a very sobering, just it's kind of like a, a throwaway line, but it's everything. It says, the wicked will act wickedly. And we go... This is news. Revelation 22, at the end of times, let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. See, when Christ returns, or when you die, there is no more opportunity to change your character or your destiny. What you are then, you will be forever. If that doesn't pucker you up a little bit, then you're not thinking. That is extraordinarily sobering. The Word of God is only understood through the Spirit of God. We, he just said, the wicked are going to do wickedly because the wicked won't understand. But the wise will have insight. Well, we get wisdom from the Word of God the Spirit of God illuminates our minds so we can understand the things of God. If you don't have the Spirit of God, if you don't belong to Him, they appear as foolishness because the natural mind without the Spirit of God does not understand the things of God. The wise he's talking about here are those who have trusted in Messiah. They have the Spirit of God. They are forgiven. The Holy Spirit opens their minds to comprehend God's truth. You will not and I will not understand what this book says without the Holy Spirit opening our eyes. That's why when you read God's Word, what's the first thing you do? Pray for Him to open your eyes. Pray, Lord. I mean, this week, I ran into, I always run into brick walls when I study. I mean, I just, I hit the wall. I don't know what to do. Every time the Lord says the same thing. Get on your face and ask me for wisdom. And I'm going, am I that stupid? He says, you think? <laughs> right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. I have to be told that every week, week in and week out, right? Verse 11, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. And you say, what in the world is that all about? The tribulation lasts seven years, Right? The last half, the Great Tribulation, is 1,260 days. 
42 months of 30-day months. That's not the end of the story because the millennium, the messianic kingdom, where Jesus Christ rules and reigns on planet Earth, does not begin the very next day after the tribulation ends. There is apparently a 75-day interval between the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And there are a number of things that takes place during that period of time. During that 75 days, following the return of Christ, before he's on the throne in Jerusalem, several things take place. First, the Antichrist is killed. His image, the abomination of desolation, apparently remains in the temple for another 30 days, and then it's removed. The Antichrist, who is killed at the end, will be resurrected because Scripture says he and the false prophet will be thrown alive into the lake of fire forever and ever, Revelation 19. Satan will be bound and thrown in the abyss for how long? A thousand years. That will take place in this 75-day period. The Gentiles will be gathered together for judgment. This is known as the sheep and goat judgment in Matthew 25. That takes place during this period of time. Old Testament saints will be resurrected. Tribulation saints will be resurrected. So you're looking and you're saying, why is God so detailed? Because God is a precise God. God is a very precise God. He does stuff by the nanosecond. There is no approximate with God. When he says this is how long it's going to take, it's going to take that long. So the word of God is exact because the character of God is exact. So you look at this and you say, okay, what do I do with all this data? Well, verse 13 tells you. The very last verse of this book is very appropriate for us at this point. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Here's the principle. Be spiritually responsible every day because resurrection and recompense are guaranteed someday. Be spiritually responsible every day because resurrection and recompense are guaranteed someday. He says, Daniel, go your way to the end. Jesus commands Daniel and the rest of us, live your lives faithfully one day at a time and leave the future in God's hands. Be responsible to do what God called you to do today. You're not responsible for what God called you tomorrow. Tomorrow's not here. Your response is, Lord, what is it you want me to do now, today? Tomorrow morning, you get out of bed. First thing you say, Lord, I want to walk with you today. I surrender my life to you. What's your plan for this day? Because his plan for tomorrow is better than your plan for tomorrow, in case you were wondering. So it would be a good idea to ask him, what is your plan for me today, right? Well, we know we're supposed to make disciples until he returns, so the job description is kind of clear in Matthew 28. He says, Daniel, enter into rest and rise again. Well, both death is certain and resurrection is obviously certain again. And you will receive your allotted portion. So Daniel says, God is, Daniel is told a reward is coming. When Christ returns, you'll get your reward. And that is the inheritance that every believer will get, Colossians 1.12. When we live on earth, we have responsibilities. After your death, you will be resurrected. That's the second R, right? Responsibilities now, resurrection in the future, and reward or recompense. So God reveals the future as he chooses. 
We've seen a whole lot of the future unveiled in Daniel. Not just to give us information, but so we can honor him through informed and obedient action. God never gives you information just to inform you. God always expects you to obey what you know. We talk about that a lot in this class. So as we look at these passages, there are four major revelations in Daniel. God gives us a great deal of information about the character of Daniel, about the conduct of Daniel, and about the future of the Gentile world and the Jewish world, not just to entertain us, not just to say, wow, isn't that great stuff. It's so that we can live according to what we now have been told, what we now know. And that's what he's telling Daniel. He says, Daniel, you live today, each day at a time, responsibly. Do what I've told you to do. You will die. You will be resurrected. And there will be recompense, which means payback, right? You'll be getting rewards based on your faithfulness. By the way, it has nothing to do with salvation. You are not saved based on your behavior. You were saved based on the works that Jesus Christ did, not your own work, right? By grace. But your rewards, 1 Corinthians 3, come based on your faithfulness or lack thereof. So there is a difference in rewards. We're all saved at the foot of the cross, only at the foot of the cross. But what you do here matters because the reward that you receive in the future is based on your faithfulness in the present, right? Parable of the talents. You know that story. Okay. Let's summarize, and then we'll do prayer and praise. Number one, God has ordained the great tribulation in order to put an end to wickedness and wicked ones. That's going to happen. To bring about worldwide revival. When you read Revelation 6 through 18, you will see devastation on a scale you've never seen before. You will also see revival on a scale you've never seen before. More people will come to Christ in the last three and a half years of the tribulation than any other comparable period in history. Millions will come to Christ during the middle of the greatest outpouring of evil on earth. Isn't that just like our God? He will save more people in the great tribulation than any other period of time in history. It's all written there. You should read it. And thirdly, he will do extremes with the Jewish people in order to save them, just like he does extremes with us. Number two, everything on earth has an expiration date including you, so invest your energy into eternity. Number three, God loves his people relentlessly, and he is ruthless in destroying anything that separates them from his love. So when you endure suffering or troubles or trials, remember they come from the hand of your Father who loves you. He does. Only those who submit to the will of God can understand the mind of God, Obedience is an organ of cognition. We've talked about that. But God has chosen to conceal some things until the end. And therefore, be spiritually responsible every day because resurrection and recompense are guaranteed someday. So far, so good? I think you have enough to think about. You probably have even more, like I do, that we need to be bring to the Lord and say, Lord, in light of the knowledge you have given me, what are you calling me to do with that? specifically in my life. Know that I love you guys. Now that you know, do.
Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.